This podcast is brought to you by Wayne Baker, the author of a new book entitled All You Have to Do is Ask. Please join Greg and Wayne on podcast number 760 as they speak about power and being able to ask for assistance. Much research has been done on the benefits of asking, but strangely enough, people still have a fear associated with asking because it makes them feel less than or not enough. In Greg's interview with Wayne, they explore how to empower you to simply ask and seek advice and how this will help you in so many ways. You can learn more about All You Have to Do is Ask by visiting www.allyouhavetodoisask.com. There you will find a free assessment on your asking style. We hope you enjoy this wonderful interview with author Wayne Baker about his new book, All You Have to Do is Ask. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining me from New York today is Nir Yal. And Nir has a new book out called Indistractable. Um, how to control your attention and choose your life. Good day to you, Nir. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you joining us. And as I mentioned just before we came on the podcast, uh, we just released a podcast by BJ Fogg on um, Tiny Habits, which is changing. Uh, you actually are a graduate of Stanford. And I'm going to let our listeners know a tad bit about you before we start getting into the podcast here. Nir writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. The MIT Technology Review dubbed Nir the prophet of habit-forming technology. Nir founded two tech companies since 2003 and has taught at Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Hazo Blantier Institute for Design at Stanford. He's the author of the best-selling book, Hooked. How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and this new one we're going to be talking about this morning, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, in addition to blogging, which we're going to put links at our blog to near N-I-R and A-N-D-F-A-R.com. Nier's writing has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, TechCrunch, Psychology Today. He's also an active investor in habit-forming technologies. Some of his past investments include Eventbrite, Refresh.io, WorkLife, Product Hunt, Macro Polo, Presence Learning, Seven Cumps, and so on. And it's great to have you on the show and spend a little bit of time with our listeners. Um, you know what I find was really kind of ironic as I read this book? Is that in 2014, you wrote the book Hooked, How to Build mm-hmm. Habit-Forming Products. And the book became a must-read and was on the shelves of most of these tech firms, which were getting all of us out here hooked. Um, what are some of the hidden psychological strategies that successful companies use to get people hooked, whether it's their, on their uh, smartphone or their iPad or whatever it might be? On, their, on the products and services that they have. Yeah, so there's all kinds of things that companies will do to make their products more engaging, more habit-forming, the kind of products that you want to use every day. So my idea behind Hooked was to steal those secrets from Facebook and Google and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack so that all kinds of people and all kinds of businesses can use these type of habits for good. Uh, and that's exactly what's happened. So companies like Fitbod use the hook model to get people hooked to exercising in the gym. 
Uh, Kahoot uses the hook model to get kids hooked onto in-classroom learning. Uh, I've even worked with the New York Times to help people get hooked onto reading the newspaper every day. So the idea there was that any business can use these techniques to build the more engaging, more habit-forming products. And, uh, and, and so the idea was to not make these techniques something that only Silicon Valley uh, social networks and video gaming companies can use, uh, but that any of us can use. But of course, given my background in the design of habits and using technology to change our habits, I also had this, this uh, perspective on how to break bad habits. So if Hooked is about how do we build good habits using technology, then Indistractable, my latest book, is really about how do we break those bad habits. And I figured, you know, who better than someone who understands exactly how these products are built in order to reveal the Achilles heel of distraction. Well, it's uh, really a good combination to have uh, studied what all these companies are doing and then give us the opportunity to really understand more in this new book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And in that, you relate a story about playing a game with your daughter. Uh, She had an answer to what uh, you talked to as superpower was. And she came up with it right away. It was boom, just happened. And you became distracted by your darn phone at the moment that she asked, answered her question, and daddy couldn't answer the question. Now, you state that living the life we want to requires not only doing the right things, it also requires stop doing the wrong things that take us off track. And obviously, you were doing one of those wrong things at that time. Your daughter came up with her answer. What advice do you have for our listeners to stay on track and to not get distracted by all of the stuff that's around us. Yeah, yeah. So that that was really a wake-up call for me when I realized that I had gotten distracted by my phone and I'd blown this perfect daddy-daughter moment that I had with, uh, with my wonderful daughter. That was when I realized I needed to reassess my relationship with distraction. And my first impulse was to blame the technology. I got rid of my phone. I got... Uh, I got a flip phone instead of my iPhone so that it had no apps on it. I got a, a word processor with no internet connection. And I did what a lot of people will tell you to do is, uh, you know, go on a digital detox, get rid of social media, stop using all these products. And look, for, for the vast majority of people, it's nice to say it's really hard to do because they, we require these tools for our jobs and they provide us a lot of benefit. But I said, okay, you know what, if that's what uh, I'm supposed to do, I'll try it. Uh, I got rid of all that stuff. And to my amazement, I still kept getting distracted. I would sit down at my desk and I'd say, oh, there's that book on the bookshelf that, you know, I should probably do some research in there or let me clean up my desktop or why don't I just uh, take out the trash? And I kept getting distracted. And so the first big lesson is to understand that distraction goes much deeper than our digital devices. That in fact, Plato talked about distraction 2,500 years ago. He called it akrasia. So 2,500 years before the iPhone, people were complaining about how distracting the world is. So the first place we have to start is to understand why we get distracted in the first place. And to do that, we have to understand what is distraction. So the best way to understand what distraction is, is to understand what distraction is not. So the opposite of distraction is not focus, okay? The opposite of distraction is traction. Both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that's spelled action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things you do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do with intent. So this is really important for two reasons. One, 
anything can become a distraction. Okay, I used to sit at my desk and say, okay, now I'm going to work on that big project. I'm not going to procrastinate anymore. I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. Here I go, but let me just check email real quick. <laughs> right? Let me do that thing on my to-do list that's kind of easy to do because it feels productive. And I would keep getting distracted thinking I was doing something productive. And so this is why distraction is so pernicious. It makes us prioritize the urgent at the expense of the important. So anything that takes you off track from what you plan to do is a distraction. It can be your boss, it can be your kid, it can be the television, it can be Facebook, anything that prevents you from what you plan to do, including the stuff you think is helpful, right? Checking email feels like a productive worky task, but I would argue if it's not what you plan to do with your time, you are going off track and you are just as much distracted as if you were playing a video game. So anything can be a distraction. Conversely, mm -hmm. anything can be traction. So I'd argue there's nothing wrong with playing video games. There's nothing wrong with watching the football game. There's nothing wrong with doing anything you enjoy to do as long as you do it on your schedule, not on somebody else's. So the so idea here is that... No, let, me, let me say it. On someone else's who's tr attempting to distract you because they want you to look at an ad or they want you to go on Facebook or they want you to do something. Um, right. Now, I think it was not that long ago. It's maybe five years ago. Microsoft did a big study on this, you know, and they looked at the number of times that people uh, were distracted in the lack of productivity because of the lack of focus, um, mm -hmm. you know, because they were constantly being distracted by this and that and other thing. And I don't remember the exact numbers. I do remember, though, that the outcome was, you know, as we start to move from task to task to task to task and we don't ever complete any one thing. If you would kind of comment on that, because that seems to be the dis-ease that people have. It's like, oh, I've got to go check the cell phone. You know, there's right. something waiting there in those emails for me when absolutely nothing is waiting there that couldn't wait. Right. Right. <laughs> so this gets to the heart of the problem. Exactly. So we like to blame the pings, dings, and rings, the things outside of us. But it turns out that the root cause of distraction is what's going on inside of us that it's not the external triggers, it's what we call the internal triggers. And what we have to come to grips with is that the reason we keep going off track, the reason we do things we don't want to, that we, that we later regret and that distract us is because we are looking to escape an uncomfortable sensation. That is the root cause of all this distraction. That as much as we blame these rings and dings, it turns out that what's really going on is in our heads. That when we feel lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we check Google. When we're bored, we watch the news, we check sports scores, we go to Pinterest, Reddit. We use these products and services because we are trying to escape an uncomfortable internal state. And so we need to come to grips with that because what this means is all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort. Then what that means is that time management is pain management. And this is something that, that is not properly addressed in the, the productivity community and, you know, people try and use the latest life hacks and different mm -hmm. techniques. At the end of the day, none of that stuff is going to work if you don't understand why you are distracted. What uncomfortable sensation are you looking to escape from? So your story in the book about Tantalus, I, if I pronounced it right, which Tantalus, came from this, yeah. Yeah, this ancient Greek history. Was where he was constantly distracted, wanting the next thing out of his reach, right? Um, yeah. So as humans, I mean, you're a so you're a behavioral psychologist, right? So you've studied this. 
What is it in there that wants us to reach for the next shiny thing? I know you said it's the pain, but but really what's going on that's triggering, you know, these neurons firing the way they fire to want to say, well, let's go chase the next best shiny thing, the next shiny object that's out there. And I believe that much of society, uh, because of the evolution of society, if you look at all the stuff that is out there, I don't think if you go back to the agricultural age, we had much of the problem that we've got today. But in our technology era, we're we're constantly on. We're always on. We're connected. We can't ever get unconnected, or at least it doesn't seem that way. Well, so the the problem is as old as mankind. I mean, Plato talked about it again, you know, twenty five hundred years ago, and I think that that it's actually something that that we should lean into. I, I think one of the problems I have with the self help and productivity community these days is that we're constantly told if you're not happy all the time, if you're not satisfied with your life then something's wrong with you. Something must be broken about you. And I think nothing could be further from the truth. Let, let's think about this from an evolutionary basis. If there was ever this idyllic tribe of humans who were happy and contented and satisfied all the time, do you think they would have done well? I don't think so. In fact, if there was ever such a tribe, our ancestors probably killed and ate them. Mm-hmm. Because you would not want a species that was contented. So I argue that feeling bad is not bad. It is part of our evolutionary heritage to feel disquietude. That is how, this is what we have evolved to feel. The problem is that we don't know how to respond to those uncomfortable sensations. We seek escape. You see, we don't want to blame the escape. We want to ask ourselves, why do we seek escape? And so what we want to do is to arm ourselves with techniques that we can use so that when we feel this these uncomfortable sensations, which all of us experience, stress, uncertainty, fatigue, loneliness. As you said, it's not just the pings and dings. It's that we are turning to these devices. Even when somebody doesn't need us, we turn to these things because of something going on inside of us. Let me tell you, Mm -hmm. if you were like me, sitting with my daughter, having a perfectly nice afternoon, and I couldn't sit still, I had to check my phone. It wasn't my phone. It wasn't my phone. There was something else going on. If you can't sit at your desk without concentrating on a project, for 30, 45 minutes without checking email or Slack channel, it's not the email and Slack channel. It's what's going on inside of us. And so I tell right. the story of Tantalus that you mentioned. I just want to make sure everybody's up to speed on what that story is about. I think it's really pertinent. So this Greek story, ancient tale of uh, this, this person called Tantalus who is cursed to the underworld. And in the underworld, his curse is to wade in a puddle of water. And every time he reaches down to drink the water, the water recedes. So he's always thirsty. And above his head is a branch of fruit. And on this fruit tree, he wants to reach for the fruit, but he, every time he reaches for it, he can't reach it. It recedes, and he can't, he can't eat the fruit. So this is, in, in one level, this is a story about the human condition. We always want more and more and more, right? We always want more status, more stuff, more experiences, and yet we're never satisfied. But I actually think there's a deeper meaning. And the deeper meaning is to ask ourselves, why was Tantalus reaching for this stuff in the first place? He's in hell. He's already dead. And the folly of his ways is that he doesn't realize, he doesn't need this stuff at all. That's the real moral. Just like in our case, we think we need to check every email. We think we need to catch up on every latest news headline. We think we need to be constantly connected and up to date. And it turns out we don't. It's all in our heads. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And it, you know, when you look at the Eastern philosophy, and, and I'm a devotee of Self-Realization Fellowship as well, and the meditation part of it, for me, has really been one of the biggest factors in helping me to control these urges. Because none of this, I mean, if you look at impermanence in life, you say, hey, uh, we don't need to attach to this stuff. You you tell a great another great story in the book about Zoe Chance, professor at Yale of management, and uh, wanted to see if you could tell the story and the lessons that we could learn from her addiction to a product, Strava Smart Pedometer. Um, you know, I'm familiar with Strava. I think it's Strava. Is that correct? The the company that makes all the stuff that you compete and you know you have all these people that are trying to compete for being better at what they're doing. But I thought it was a great story and probably an opportunity to to bring out some more points about yeah. how distracted we can become. Yeah, so so Zoe Chance is a professor at Yale and uh she found she studies actually persuasive technology, as do I, and and, and she actually found herself uh becoming unhealthily dependent on one of the products that she studied. It was a it was a pedometer. And she found that she was was using it too much. In fact, one evening, uh, she was about to go to bed. It was about midnight, and the pedometer beeped at her through her phone and said, "Hey, here's a challenge. If you can climb 20 stairs in the next two minutes, we're going to give you triple points." And so she thought, "Oh, that's a that's a pretty good offer. Okay, fine, I'll go do it." And so she walked downstairs to her in her basement, walked back up a few times, and got those points. And then it chimed out again and said, hey, if you do it again, we'll give you even more points. So Zoe Chance did this from 12 midnight till 2 in the morning. And by the time she realized what had happened, she had climbed more steps than it took to get to the top of the Empire State Building. So one perspective on this is to say, oh, my goodness, this technology is so persuasive. Look what it made her do. But, of course, is that, if that was true, we'd all be in perfect shape. But that's clearly not the case. So why did Zoe become unhealthily addicted to this product? And so many of us don't. What, what happened exactly? I would argue that Zoe used it to the extent that it was actually harming her, that she was overusing it. This was not a healthy use of the product. And so it turns out the deeper story and the reason that it's, I think, as much of a folly to blame our phones as it is to blame a pedometer for addicting us is that the part of the story that really, that really emphasizes what was really going on is that in this time, Zoe hadn't gotten her job yet at Yale. She was looking for a full-time uh, teaching position. She was also in the middle of a very difficult divorce. And she was using this pedometer to help her escape, to help her get out of her current situation. And this is the root cause of all distractions, is that it's our desire to escape these uncomfortable sensations. So I think her story is a great reminder of how it's not just the technology. Clearly, the distraction plays a role as it has throughout human history. But the root cause is always what we are trying to escape from and our inability to deal with those uncomfortable sensations in a healthier manner. Well, and I think if that's all our listeners pulled from this podcast, it would be well worth it. It's what are you trying to escape from? So psychologically, really look a lot deeper. And Nir, you cited Jonathan Bricker, the psychologist at uh, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle. I thought this was interesting as well. And he'd spent his career helping people manage the kind of discomfort that not only leads to distraction, but also leads to disease, as it stated in the book. You state that he used imagination to help patients see things differently. And he used a form which I'm familiar with, ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Can you tell us how that 
works and how it would work well for people uh, who are trying to uh, remove the distraction and stay disease free? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, for many of us, when we try and stop ourselves from doing something we don't want to do, stop ourselves from getting distracted, whether that's uh, checking email when we should be working on a big project, whether that's not eating that piece of chocolate cake we don't need, whether it's not smoking that cigarette, many of us tend to resort to what's called strict abstinence. Strict abstinence is when we say, no, I'm not going to do that. And Sometimes strict absence can work in certain situations for certain people, but it doesn't necessarily work for things you can't escape. So if you're on a diet, you can't escape food. It's everywhere. You need it to survive. When it comes to technology, you can't just stop using technology. We need it for our livelihood. You'll get fired. And so what we, what we want to do is not to use strict absence because, you know, let me give you a really good example of, of why strict absence backfires. So right now I'm going to ask you to do something that you have not been doing all day. So if I'm going to tell you to not do it in the next few minutes, it shouldn't be very difficult, right? We'll see how you fare in this exercise. Right now, no matter what you do, I want you to not think about a white bear. Do not think about a white bear. Don't do it. Don't do it. Of course, <laughs> what are you doing, right? You can't do anything but think about a white bear. <laughs> exactly. And so that's what happens in our brains. We tend to ruminate on the things we tell ourselves not to have. It's kind of like pulling on a rubber band. You pull it, pull it, pull it, pull it until, until you can't pull it anymore. And then when you finally release it, the rubber band goes ricocheting across the room. And that's what's happening inside our brains too. When we tell ourselves, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Okay, fine, give in. That release of tension, remember we said earlier that all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort. That relief of that tension, the brain registers as pleasure. It mm -hmm. actually feels good to absolve ourselves of that discomfort. So we're doing nothing but reinforcing the very thing we're trying not to give into. So what's the alternative? Instead of strict absence, what we want to do instead is to use some of these techniques that I cite from acceptance and commitment therapy. My favorite one is called the 10-minute rule. The 10-minute rule says that you can give in to any temptation, whether that's a piece of chocolate cake or checking your, your email when you know you should be focusing on a big project, whatever it might be. You can give in to that temptation in just 10 minutes of doing what's called surfing the urge. So for those 10 minutes, what I want you to do is to identify that sensation, explore it with curiosity rather than contempt, and just sit with that sensation. Talk to yourself the way you would talk to a good friend. Now, if you feel the impulse to get back on the task at hand, great, get back to the task at hand. But under no circumstances are you to give in to that temptation until the 10 minutes are up. So for just 10 minutes, focus on the sensation. Don't focus on the temptation. Focus on what it is you're experiencing, the stress, the anxiety, the uncertainty. What is it that's causing you that, that discomfort? Sit with that. Talk to yourself with compassion as you do this. What you will find is nine times out of 10, when that alarm goes off and the 10 minutes are up, you no longer have that desire. And if you do, it's okay. You can give in. But most of the time, nine times out of 10, you will just get back to that task at hand before the time is up. So that is a great prescription. Uh, I, I'm always wondering what happens in that 10 minutes that allows people to move their perspective or change uh, what, how they're looking at what they wanted. So let's say somebody wanted to go for a brownie. You're kind of saying, well, stop and think about it, sit with it. And then at the end of 10 minutes, they don't go get the brownie. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So here's, here's what tends to happen. So people tend to fall into two categories. 
We call them the blamers or the shamers. Mm-hmm. The blamers say it's something outside of me. It's the technology. It's the brownie's fault. It's this modern world doing it to me. We blame things outside of ourselves. That mm-hmm. doesn't work because it, it's disempowering. There's nothing I can do about that. It's, it's something else's fault, so giving. The other group is the shamer. The shamer, this is what I used to do, I used to say there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm dysfunctional in some way. I must have a short attention span. Uh, look how lazy I am. I would, I would beat myself up. And, of course, that doesn't work because that only creates more of these internal triggers. The shame makes us worse. And what do we need to do to escape that discomfort? More distraction. So that doesn't work either. What you want to do is to not be a blamer, not be a shamer, be a claimer. A claimer claims responsibility for these actions, acknowledging that, look, this stuff isn't your fault. You didn't invent Facebook. You didn't invent the iPhone. You didn't invent the chocolate cake. You didn't invent this stuff. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. So you can't change how you feel. You can't change the emotional sensation. What you can change is your response to that emotional sensation. So by simply surfing the urge, by understanding that these sensations, they crest and then they subside, we give them time for this wave to kind of to, to subside, to, to alleviate itself, and therefore we don't feel as much of that urge and we can take responsibility for those actions we take. It's great, great prescriptions, great opportunities for people to learn here. And I know that people that um, you know frequently go on diets and get those urges um, – you know, and what you've just given is a great prescription for that. Now, you mentioned in your chapter when you started talking about life domains, but you turn values into time, that distraction draws you toward what you want or or that distraction draws you toward what you want in life while distraction pulls you away. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you recommend making time for our values that we move toward what we want versus away from what we don't want in life. Yeah, absolutely. So, so until now, we've talked about step one, which is mastering the internal triggers. Now, there's four steps. The second step is make time for traction. The third step is to hack back external triggers. And the fourth step is to prevent distraction with pack. So let, let's talk about that second step. You know, I interviewed hundreds of people over the past five years for when, when I wrote this book, Indistractable. And one of the things I observed among every single person who struggled with distraction is that they did not keep a proper calendar. And by proper calendar, I mean time box down to the minute. Now, I know some people say, oh my gosh, that's crazy. I can't time box every minute of my day. That sounds so rigid. Here's the thing. If you want something, you have to put in a little bit of work. And oftentimes, it's the opposite, that you will, uh, the opposite effect you will get. So if we want more freedom in our day, we actually need to put more constraints into it. You know, some of the most unproductive days I tend to have are the ones where I have, oh, I have the whole day free, and somehow I don't get anything done. And so it turns out when you put constraints in your day, when you time box your day, you are much more likely to do what you say you're going to do and not get distracted. Because here's the fundamental truth. Because one thing I want people to remember who are listening to my voice right now, it is that you have no right to call something a distraction if you don't know what it distracted you from. How can you call something a distraction if you didn't plan what you wanted to do with your time. You know, we spend so much money protecting our stuff, right? We, we have security systems in our homes. We have alarms in our cars. We put our money in banks behind vaults. And yet when it comes to our time, yeah, sure, whoever wants to call, text, ping me, whatever, take as much time as you need. And so we have to start protecting our time by deciding in advance 
how we want to spend it. And the way we start this is by turning our values into time. And I'm actually mm-hmm. going to give you a tool that you can put in the show notes. I built a free tool. Anybody can use it. You don't have to sign up for anything. The idea here, instead of you know, a five-year plan, instead of a vision board, let's just start with next week. Okay? Mm-hmm. I want you to take a look at next week and to put your values in your calendar. How do you do that? Well, you have to ask yourself, when it comes to these three life domains, you are the first in, in, the, in the middle of these three concentric circles, is you. What values do you have? Values are defined as the attributes of the person you want to become. So what values do you have when it comes to you, to the domain of your life? So time for prayer, meditation, exercise, proper rest. Do you have that time in your calendar? The second domain is your relationships. You know, we know that, that relationships, understanding others and having them understand us is incredibly important for our psychological health and well-being. Well, do you have that time scheduled to be with your good friend, uh, to, to, to attend that community group, to be with your children, your, your spouse, your parents, whoever it might be, do you have that time in your calendar? And then finally, when it comes to the work domain, and if people schedule, it turns out two, two-thirds of Americans don't schedule their day, but even the one-third who do only schedule one domain, which is the work domain. And so this is very important. You know, work falls into two categories. We have reactive work and we have reflective work. Reactive work is, is work that's done based on, you know, reacting to something. So if you work in a call center, your job is 100% reactive. You're just picking up the phone all day, right? That's what your job is. You wait for the phone to ring and you pick it up. That's a 100% reactive job. Very few people's jobs are 100% reactive. And so if your job requires reflection, if you need time for focused work, if you need time to think, that time has to be scheduled in as well, and you have to protect that time for that reflective work, because that is where we do our best thinking, our best planning, our best strategizing. And if you don't protect that time, somebody else is going to plan that time for you instead. So what would you recommend as a journal or uh, something that someone could use to actually track that time, time tracker? Uh, that might be a valuable recommendation that you could give. I mean, I know we're going to talk about, and it'll be in the blog, when people buy the book, they can virtually put up their receipt number and download your 80-page workbook, which, by the way, is quite a value to the listeners out there uh, that accompanies the book. But any um, suggestions or just kind of make their own journal? Yeah, so you can actually use any calendaring tool, uh, whether that's a Google Calendar or Microsoft Outlook Calendar. Any calendar tool can work, or even just a piece of paper. But the idea is you want to schedule every minute of your day. Now, that doesn't mean you beat yourself up if you get off track. That's not the point of this exercise. The reason is so that you can look at every minute of your day and understand what is traction and what is distraction. If it's on your calendar, it's traction. If it's not on your calendar, it's distraction. So where this is really powerful is when you get to the end of your day and you've planned time for something enjoyable. You know, many of us, we get to the end of our day and all we want to do is just watch some Netflix or just play with our kids, but we feel guilty because we still haven't done everything on our to-do list, which is why for most people I think actually to-do lists backfire. Because instead of, of keeping that to-do list, which just reinforces your identity as someone who yet again has not done everything they wanted to do, you can enjoy your evening with, in peace. You can say, hey, this is exactly what I wanted to do with my time. I plan to watch Netflix for, for two hours, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. It's in my schedule. So you can actually use any scheduling tool. I did build a tool on my website at nearandfar.com. I can give you the link for the show notes as well. It's totally free. You don't have to sign up for anything. It's just a very, very easy tool to get started in time boxing your day. 
Well, we'll certainly uh, put a link into our blog to that as well. Now, to wrap up our interview, again, the book is fascinating. The book is an opportunity for people to shift behaviors and habits that they've created. I always tell people near, if you had a video camera following you all day long and you watch the video camera back, would you like the actions that you'd taken? Mm-hmm. Most people mm-hmm. will say, uh, you know, I really could have done things a lot better than I did. And I'm saying, well, if it's not serving you, let's find new ways that you can do that. And you provide right. recommendations to prevent distracts and packs. And you have a little sections in the book about all this. Can you explain packs and how we can take back control of our lives you, using some of the packs that you recommend in the book? Sure. So the step one we talked about is about mastering the internal triggers. Step two is about making time for traction, which we talked about a bit. Then we've got hacking back the external triggers, which is changing these pings and dings and even our coworkers' behavior around that, that might cause distraction, even our kids' behavior that might cause distraction. And then finally, the last step is to prevent distraction with packs. And this is what we do last after we've used those other four techniques. So there's three types of packs. Packs are these pre-commitments, these promises we make to ourselves or to other people that help us stay on track. So there's three types of pacts. There's an effort pact where we put some bit of friction in between us and something we don't want to do, something that makes that behavior more difficult. The second type of pact is called a price pact where there's a a monetary disincentive to doing something that you didn't want to do. And then finally, the last type of pact is called an identity pact. I think this is the most interesting of the three. An identity pact is when we make some kind of moniker, some kind of noun that we can use to call ourselves that helps us stay on track. And so this actually comes from the psychology of religion, that when people have a moniker, when they say, I am an observant Muslim, or I am a devout Christian, or even for that matter, I'm a vegetarian. When people say those sorts of things, they are using an identity pact to keep themselves from doing something they don't want to do. They, they are more likely to stay on track and do what they say to be consistent with that identity. So think about it. Uh, A vegetarian doesn't wake up in the morning and say, hmm, I wonder if I should have some bacon for breakfast. No, that's not what vegetarians do. It it doesn't, you know, that's just not consistent with their identity. So we can do something very similar when it comes to distraction. And so this is why the title of the book is Indistractable, because I want this to become the new moniker, right? I want people to identify themselves as indistractable. Why is this so important? This has been done before. I remember... When I was growing up, I I grew up in the 1980s. I was born in the 70s, but I I grew up in the 80s. And I remember in my household back then, we had ashtrays in our living room. Now, my parents didn't smoke, but the reason we had ashtrays is because back then, if someone visited, they just expected to smoke a cigarette in your living room. That's just what people did. And so what what changed? Why why today is that something that nobody would consider doing? Can you imagine how rude that would be if someone smoked a a cigarette in your living room? That would be incredibly rude. Well, what changed? Was it some kind of law? No. What changed was that that behavior became became rude to do such a behavior. There's never been a law that says you can't smoke in someone's living room. It's a private residence. What changed is that people stood up, like my mom, And I remember the first time one of her friends came over and wanted to light a cigarette in our living room. She said, oh, I'm sorry, we are non-smokers. If you would like to smoke, please go outside. Oh, my gosh, she was so offended, right, that she she was asked to smoke outside. Of course, today, 
that would be commonplace. Nobody would ever choose to smoke a cigarette in your home without asking, certainly. And so we need that to happen today. We need to stand up and say, you know, yes, I am indistractable. I do things a little bit differently. I don't respond to every text message in 30 seconds. I plan out my day. Maybe that's a little bit differently from how you live your life, but is it any different from someone who has an unusual diet or unusual religious garb? No, it's part of their identity. And so this can become part of our identity as well. And so I'm looking for people who can say, my attention, my time, and my life will be controlled by me. I am indistractable. Well, Nir, this book is open for people who are willing to dive deep and want to change the things in their life that are creating the distractions that are keeping them from really what they want in life. I mean, that's really what you have to look at. You say, well, if you're not getting what you want, maybe better look at what's distracting you from getting what you want. And I think you've done a superb job of articulating not only psychologically and behaviorally what's going on, but having this supplemental workbook that people can get as well as we'll put a link uh, to that um, uh, scheduler that they can use that you talked about. And again, for my listeners, the book is Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life by Nir Eyal. And he had a co-author, I guess, with this is Julie Lee, is it? She's in That's right. That's my wife and co-author, right? Ah, <laughs> awesome. Well, we want to give a shout out to her as well, because obviously you don't write a book sometimes alone. It's got to be spurred by uh, uh, people who are uh, in it with you. And obviously Julie is in with this in with you. Uh, do you have Thank any you. last words that you want to uh, uh, shout out to our listeners um, about yeah, I, this? I, Sure. Yeah, I guess the, the big the big takeaway here is that distraction of all sorts. Anytime we do something we don't intend to do, it's an impulse control problem. There's nothing broken about you. You're not malfunctioning in some way. Uh, it's really about understanding why we get distracted and understanding that the antidote to impulsiveness, the antidote to doing something we don't want to do, the, 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 the solution is always forethought. So we can't leave these type of things to the last minute. If, if the, the chocolate cake is on the fork on its way to your mouth, you're going to eat it. If you sleep next to your cell phone in the you know, first thing in the morning, you're going to pick it up. And so what we want to do is to try and plan ahead to make sure that we take steps today to prevent ourselves from getting distracted tomorrow. Well, Nir, thanks for your words of wisdom. Also, thanks for creating the awareness. I think just, you know, if you just step into this and you're aware of the, the actual actions that you take, that do not serve you, you awaken to new ways to do things. And if we've done that today in this podcast, which I'm certain we have, uh, take a listen, uh, download the workbook, get the book. I'll put a link to Amazon so that you can purchase the book. Uh, But for everybody out there, thanks for listening. Have a great holiday season. You as well, Anir. Thanks so much. Thank you. My pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by Anise Kavanaugh, the author of a new book entitled Contagious You. Unlock your power to influence, lead, and create the impact you want. Please listen to podcast number 753, where Anise and Greg speak about how great leaders enable and encourage positive and contagious energy, as well as why nourishing our internal state and our mental health needs to come first if we are to be effective leaders. Please join Greg and Anise in this wonderful interview in podcast number 753. Thanks for listening.